Tonight, Al-Qaeda terrorist Omar Khadr wants to fly to Saudi Arabia. Gee, what could go wrong? It's December 11th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign, and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Look at this story. It is a national outrage to normal people, but it barely merits a headline to the media party. It really is one of the greatest divides in this country between the ruling elites and normal people, even more so than, say, the carbon tax. The politicians and the lawyers and the journalists love Omar Khadr. Canadians hate him. Of course we do. He's a convicted, confessed terrorist. He's a war criminal. He's a murderer. Here's the headline in the Canadian press story as it ran in the Toronto Star. Omar Khadr to ask for Canadian passport to travel. Permission to speak to sister. Let's go through that for a bit. The story here, it's just incredible. A former Guantanamo Bay detainee, Omar Khadr, wants to be granted a Canadian passport to travel to Saudi Arabia and permission to speak to his controversial sister. Is that really the main thing about Omar Khadr to describe him? That he was a Guantanamo Bay detainee? Is that the most important thing about him? Not that he was an Al-Qaeda terrorist? as was his father before him. Not that he was convicted by a jury for murder and other war crimes, not, not, not a mention of that at all. Let alone a mention of his victims, including the US Army medic he murdered, Sergeant Christopher Sphere. Would Paul Bernardo, if he were looking for bail or a relaxation of his punishments, would he be referred to in the newspapers as a former prisoner, but without mentioning what he was in prison for doing? Would that just be omitted? And a smiling picture of him being used. Same picture, same headline in the National Post. Word for word. You know, if you type in Omar Khadr into Google image search, you can't find a bad picture of the guy. He's always smiling. That's not because he's always smiling. It's because the only photos that the media party publishes are of him always smiling or of him as a young boy. That's a photo provided by his own mother directly to the media. Seriously, it's all part of his PR rehab. It, that's not news, is it? It's PR. Compare that to one of the most beautiful women in the world, a former supermodel, probably the most fashionable dresser in the world, who happens to be first lady, Melania Trump. Can you find some, I, mean, I guess you can find some happy smiling ones. But it's hard because the media narrative there is the opposite. They're trying to portray Omar Khadr as harmless and friendly, just the boy next door. But they're trying to portray Melania Trump as either evil and sour or trapped by Trump as some prisoner. It's propaganda through photo editors. It really is. I mean, when was the last time you saw Melania Trump on the cover of a high fashion magazine? She's a former supermodel, yet she has not been on one important magazine cover in two years, whereas Michelle Obama was on every week. Here's Omar Khadr on a national magazine cover. He gets on, not a supermodel. McLean's magazine, look at him smiling. What a friendly guy. What's so gross about this picture is that the woman he's standing next to, Amanda Lindout, she was kidnapped by Muslim terrorists and raped by them in accordance with the Koran's rules 
on taking infidel women as rape slaves. McLean's put a Muslim terrorist murderer standing next to a victim of Muslim terrorism, and they're both smiling. So gross. But that's just PR. That's just the media. That's why no one trusts the media. But what's truly abominable is the facts of it, that Omar Khadr is actually out on the streets, despite that jury sentencing him to 40 years in prison in the States. That was Obama who sprung Cotter free and pushed him on Canada. Uh, Stephen Harper accepted him, and then Trudeau not only freed him, but gave him an apology and cut him a $10.5 million check. But back to the story. Let me, let me focus on the story, not go down tangents. But I, I want to point out, by the way, it was Harper who freed uh, Cotter. Uh, but I, I want to point to um, every single line in this story and how it's propaganda. So be on guard. Cotter, who is now 32, will be back in the Court of Queen's Bench in Edmonton Thursday to apply for changes to his bail conditions, which were imposed while he appeals war crimes convictions by a U.S. military conviction, commission. I should remind you that Cotter pled guilty. He gave a detailed description of the war crimes he committed, including that he got paid a bounty for killing Americans that he was trained in things like poisoning people, that he planted IEDs of the type that killed Canadian soldiers. Omar Khadr freely confessed to all of this, and we know it was freely confessed, because his very zealous lawyers approved every word of it. You could see their signatures on the page. They would never have approved of him making a false confession. That would be a violation of their legal ethics. They wouldn't do that. So now he's appealing his conviction after having given graphic details of exactly what he did. <laughs> Gee, it's almost like you can't trust a terrorist these days. I mean, if you can't trust a murderer to keep a written promise, what's the world coming to these days, eh? Now, uh, let me read some more here. An affidavit by Cotter filed with the court says the impact of his bail conditions are mainly psychological, a daily reminder of what he went through. I feel like the indefinite and potentially endless detention that I suffered in Guantanamo Bay is continuing, he wrote. I hope that there will be some end to this process, but there is none in sight. Oh, he's so poor, isn't he? The poor dear. He really is the victim here, isn't he? Not Christopher Spear, the man he murdered. Not Tabitha Spear, Christopher's widow. Not their two fatherless kids, Taryn and Tanner. You see, Omar Khadr as a daily reminder of Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, he, he's not there anymore. He's, he's been out for almost a decade. Uh, but he's the real victim. Won't you have pity on him? Just don't mention the family he destroyed. Oma Cotter, let me keep reading here. Cotter spent years in U.S. detention at Guantanamo Bay after he was caught when he was 15 and accused of tossing a grenade that killed Special Forces soldier Christopher Spear at a militant compound in Afghanistan in 2002. I love that word, militant. They just can't say terrorist, can they? Yeah, it is true he was accused of tossing a grenade that killed Spear. Glad they finally mentioned him. And he was also convicted of it. And he also confessed to it. It really wasn't a difficult conviction. When the U.S. sees Cotter, they also sees these home movies of him making IED explosives. There he is. And posing with, that's a machine gun behind him, by the way. Those baskets are IEDs. So yeah, he was accused and he was convicted. Would you ever see the media saying Paul Bernardo was accused of killing people, but not mentioning that he was convicted? Um, 
I mean, they just don't use the word murder, do they? They say killed. Let me read some more. He says in his affidavit that he would, be, he would like to be able to speak on the phone or over Skype to his sister, Zainab Khadr. He is also asking to perform the Hajj, a pilgrimage to Mecca, Saudi Arabia, which is a mandatory religious duty for Muslims once in their lifetime. Oh, Zainab Khadr, his sister. She's a terrorist lover, too. She loves the murder of infidels, and unlike Omar Khadr, she doesn't keep quiet about it. She just, she just lets it rip. Three of his friends who were with him had been killed. He is the only sole survivor. What did you expect him to do? Why is it? Why does nobody say you killed three of his friends? Why does everybody say he killed an American soldier? Big deal. Yeah, what a sweetheart. It's a small world, though. That terrorist lover um, hooked up with this terrorist lover on the right. Um, he's also accused criminal. His name is Joshua Boyle. He used to be married to Zainab Cotter. Did you know that? And then he took this woman, his subsequent wife, to Afghanistan, where this woman was raped by the Taliban. These are just the best people, aren't they? What's so weird here is that Justin Trudeau had a secret meeting with, with uh, the Boyles when they got back from Afghanistan. It was a secret. It only came to light when Boyle tweeted this tweet about it. And, and he said... Um, Incidentally, not our first meeting with Justin Trudeau. That was in 06 in Toronto over other common interests. Ha ha. Isn't that odd? But don't you worry. Canada's tenacious media party will get right on that loose end. You can be sure that the CBC will ask Trudeau about what he met with Cotter's brother-in-law about. As soon as they asked Trudeau about his own sexual assault on Rose Knight, that reporter in Creston, B.C. a few years back. The New York Times reported on that. The CBC, not so much. Look, the Canadian media knows who butters their bread these days. They're not going to ask Trudeau about what he met Joshua Boyle about back in 06. Another tangent, just look at this just for a moment. Is this accountability journalism or is this a low-budget Canadian remake of The Bachelor or some other lame dating show? If you could do any other job and you have to answer, what would it be? I'd be a school teacher. I knew you were going to say that. Well, no, that's, no, no. Like it's, aspirational. But it's what I am. Aspirational. Uh, Something you haven't done. No, it'd be that. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be maybe, maybe running a school. Something at the UN. Something at the. Oh no! If I'm once, once I'm done politics, I'm done politics. Young love. It's walking in the snow. I wonder if they held hands. I tell you, if you ever find yourself someone who looks at you the way that Rosemary Barton looks at Justin Trudeau, never let them go. That is a pure, pure love. Hang on to that. Let me read a little bit more from Omar Carter. Uh, for this reason, I would like to apply for a Canadian passport, he said in the document. And you know what? Omar Carter will absolutely get his passport. Our courts love Omar Khadr even more than Justin Trudeau does. And really, if we welcome back ISIS terrorists from Syria and Iraq without any criminal charges, why wouldn't we let an al-Qaeda terrorist have a passport too? I mean, you heard Trudeau. The Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Because I do. <laughs> and I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. Terrorist, son of Ahmed Khadr, terrorist, 
going to meet his pro-terrorist sister in Saudi Arabia, home of terrorists. What could possibly go wrong? But look at this. I, I think this is the buried lead in this whole story today. Uh, let me read some more here. In his affidavit, Cotter said he has been volunteering with an organization that helps refugees integrate into the community and has earned his high school diploma. Really? So, so Justin Trudeau's Syrian migrants are being shown the ropes about how to integrate into Canada, how to be law-abiding, productive citizens, how to stay out of trouble, and how to put extremism and hate and jihad behind them by a convicted murderer, an Al-Qaeda terrorist who has never publicly denounced Al-Qaeda or his own father's key role in Al-Qaeda. How did that happen? Who let that happen? Who are these Syrians that Omar Qatar is allowed to coach? How is that okay? That's boring. The media has other things to talk about. You know, I spoke a lot uh, a few years back with Dr. Michael Wellner, this guy. He's the forensic psychiatrist who interviewed Omar Qatar at length in Guantanamo Bay, who found him to be psychologically bitter, entitled, resentful, a cunning liar. And one of the things that Dr. Wellner said, referring to European studies about jihadists, was that there are three factors, three predictors, as to whether a jihadist will return to a life of terror. The first is religious piety. Does the terrorist remain a devout Muslim? And we don't know the answer to that, but at Guantanamo Bay, Omar Khadr was so religious, he actually led the other prisoners at prayer. He memorized the Quran. Uh, the next is public statements. Does the terrorist clearly and unequivocally renounce Islamic extremism and his former terror groups and terror as a tactic? Omar Khadr's never done that. I defy you to show me where Omar Khadr has said, I renounce Al-Qaeda and I reject it. He hasn't said that. He has never repudiated Al-Qaeda or his father's role in it. He just hasn't. He hasn't even repudiated Osama bin Laden, his old family friend. And finally, the third is who he associates with, who he has consorted with, in person, on the phone, online. Again, we don't know who he's hanging out with, but we know what he wants to do. He just told us he wants to go to Saudi Arabia to meet his terror-loving sister. This will not end well. My only hope is that if Cotter blows something up, he does so over there in Saudi Arabia, not over here. But if he were to murder a Canadian Jew or a Canadian soldier, as he was offered a bounty to do by Al-Qaeda, you just know that the Toronto Star would say it was mental illness. And Justin Trudeau would call anyone who was upset about it an Islamophobe. By the way, if you want to learn more about Omar Khadr, just the facts, not the loving spin, go to our website on the subject, jailkhadr.com. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, as you know, while I'm holding the fort here at our world headquarters in Toronto, we have reporters around the globe. The sun never sets on the rebel empire. We have David Menzies in Marrakesh, Morocco, and Sheila Gunn-Reed in Poland. These are not vacations. These are journalistic missions to cover United Nations conferences. David's covering the UN Global Compact for Migration, and Sheila Gunn-Reed is at her third 
Global Warming Conference, and she joins us now via Skype from Katowice, Poland. Hey, Sheila, great to see you. Looks like you're not at the Global Warming Conference, judging by the amount of electric light and general happiness there. It looks like you're amongst severely normal poles as opposed to the scolding, turn down the, turn off the lights, turn down the heat, uh, global warming sneerers. Well, first thing I will correct you on, they love their electricity and their fossil fuels down at the climate change conference. But yes, these people are much happier and far less dour. And I think they have a much better outlook on the world. We're at the Christmas market in downtown Katowice, Poland right now. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just joking because I saw some of your earlier tweets and we'll show <laughs> some of those images. Uh, the bus, one of the buses for the global warming delegates is sponsored by Poland's oil and gas and coal company or something. I mean, that's, that is tweaking the nose of the UN. I like that style. Tell me a little bit about that. That was unusual. Yeah, we saw the bus go by earlier, so it's not like we're allowed in the conference, so we just sort of parked ourselves on the street corner and waited for the bus to come by again, and it is sponsored by the Polish oil and gas company, the EcoBus, which is diesel, by the way. But this whole conference really is rubbing its, rubbing the UN's nose in the fact that Poland refuses to concede its coal country to the UN's goals. This morning we were we made plans to go to uh, a museum that celebrates the history of coal in the region. As you pointed out yesterday, this is Eastern Europe's West Virginia. It is the second largest coal producing nation in all of Europe. And anywhere between 80 and 90 percent of the region's electricity comes from coal. So we thought, let's go to the coal museum. So we go to the coal museum. We're wandering around the coal museum, which is an outdoor museum. And as it turns out, the UN Climate Change Conference, part of it is on the grounds of the coal museum. So really, I mean, it was, I wish I could achieve that level of trolling that the conservative government in Warsaw did when they strategically placed the UN Climate Change Conference next door to the coal museum. You know, uh, I, that would, the only way to top that would be to have the next global warming UN conference literally in an open pit oil sands mine <laughs> up in Fort McMurray. That is very funny. I didn't realize that. And yeah. I, you know what? I like that. Um, I suppose Poland, you know, it's still catching up economically because it was under the yoke of the Soviet Union for so long. So I suppose the economic boost of having 22,000 VIPs, you know, in five-star hotels and limos and dining and drinking, I suppose from a Polish point of view, having that kind of influx of money, that's probably a, a $20 million at least, maybe 30, 40, $50 million injection. So it's worth having, especially if they can thumb their nose at the UN, that's win-win all around from my point of view. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't uh, condemn Poland for having this conference. I certainly don't condemn Katowice for having the conference. Katowice is about 300,000 people, so not large, but not small either. So to have that sort of economic influx, it's a real boom to the local economy. Um, but in fact, Poland, or at least this part of Poland, has about 4% unemployment. And a lot of that is due in part to the 
region's vast coal reserve. Some 100,000 people work in mining here in Poland, in coal mining specifically, and that's not the spin-off. So when you have people like Greenpeace, who we encountered today saying that it's time to end coal and get off coal, I mean, really, that's not going to happen here. That's just outlandish thinking. There's no way that they can replace up to 90% of their grid with renewables, especially especially when it gets dark at four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you know, uh, Catherine McKenna and Justin Trudeau, and they get it from Gerald Butts, who launched the war on coal in Ontario. They were fairly successful in driving coal out of Ontario, and Rachel Notley is now driving coal out of Alberta. But what's so weird is that the port of Vancouver is the largest export terminal for American and some Canadian coal uh, on the West Coast. So I find that so weird that Catherine McKenna, Justin Trudeau, Gerald Butts are fine with American coal. They want to shut down Canadian coal. It's like they, they want to shut down the oil sands and Canadian oil pipelines, but they're fine with OPEC oil imports from Saudi Arabia and Algeria. And these days, a lot of American oil coming in by train. There's so many contradictions here. Um, let me ask you, though, you mentioned the town of Katowice is very coal country. Have you had any conversations, even casually, with the locals? Do, they, do a lot of locals speak English there? Do they have any comments about the UN? Are they engaged at all? Or I remember yesterday you were saying the city is sort of shrugging. They really don't even care that these folks are in town, yeah. unlike you know, Marrakesh or, uh, or Bonn a couple years ago. Do any locals have an opinion on the UN and global warming? A, a lot of locals don't speak English. So there's a lot of communication through sign language for myself and my videographer. Um, but other than that, you can't really tell that there's a UN climate change conference in town. There's not signage throughout town. Um, we happened across the other part of the conference just through happenstance. The only way you really know that uh, there's a climate change conference in town or that there are important people in town, I should say, is that the city is plagued by motorcades, constant motorcades of, you know, high level dignitaries coming through town and shutting down the streets. But outside of that, nobody really seems to care. It is business as usual in Katowice, Poland. Motorcades. Are you saying they're not using bicycles in snowy Poland? They're not on bikes there. (laughs) No one is touching the bikes, Ezra. (laughs) We actually found the bikes. There are no bike racks except for the one bike rack that is customarily provided by the United Nations. I've seen those same bikes. This is my third year in a row. Nobody seems to use the bikes, especially since the snow has started again here in Katowice. No one's using the bikes. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody. You know, not, I don't even the, the, the normal Polish people are not on the bikes. Yeah. They're not using them. You'd be crazy to ride a bike uh, in that weather. Uh, and again, your Twitter feed is gorgeous. <laughs> We're going to show some of the images that you're just taking yeah. of all this uh, goofiness there. It's, it really <laughs> is a joke, but hey, I can understand there's 20 plus thousand people there all on some taxpayers dime they don't care it's just a it's just an annual party you go uh through the good graces of our donors and you (laughs) stay very cheap you took a really cheap flight i appreciate that thank you so you're not going five-star luxury um any uh encounters with the 126 person entourage that her royal highness catherine mckenna has brought, by the way, I should say that's down <laughs> from the 333. Down, yeah, 30 people down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they had 383 delegates 
in Paris, because Paris is the city of light, city of love. I guess only 126 um, piggies at the trough wanted to go to Poland. That's still a shockingly large entourage. Have you seen any of them or are they just staying at the five-star hotels behind uh, high security and high gates? I'm standing in the snow on a wet street corner in the middle of Katowice, Poland. I am not going to see one of Catherine McKenna's high-level dignitaries, uh, bureaucrats, um, cubicle dwellers that she takes to these sort of things. I'm outside toughing it out. They're somewhere experiencing a hot bath and luxury right yeah, now. That's right. Now, um, to be serious, just for a minute, but it's fun to, to to have a joke. You are doing serious journalism about this, yeah. and um, and all your videos are at rebelun.com, and that's a page where you can click for your videos from the Global Warming Conference or David's from the Migration Conference. Um, I haven't seen all the videos you've fed to us uh, in the last day or so. I know we're just uploading some of them now. Give me a hint, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the subjects that you've covered. In, we're just having some fun banter here, but tell me some yeah. of the serious subjects you've covered for our viewers. Okay, so earlier this morning, like I said, we went to the uh, Cole Museum mm -hmm. um, and we did a little uh, video from there um, pointing out just the close proximity of, and really, you can see in the video, the climate change conference is right on top of the coal museum. Then we went and discovered some of the weirdness um, just off site. We found where Greenpeace was. We claimed climate refugee status because we were pretty cold in the uh, restaurant that Greenpeace took over. We met some strange characters, somebody named Sustainable Claus, um, who doesn't live all that sustainably. So we've done quite a bit of uh, interesting journalism here today. And, you know, we, we might do a little video about the uh, Christmas market that we're in. Um, it's not like a Berlin or Cologne Christmas market. There's a lot of overt symbols of Christianity here and very, very low levels of security. There are no barriers to keep anybody safe here in Poland because they are so tight at their own borders. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and obviously the main purpose our viewers crowdfunded you was to cover the Global Warming Conference. But since you're there in Poland, there are other interesting Polish stories, including yeah. their resistance to Angela Merkel style mass Muslim migration. And the fact that you can go to a overtly Christian Christmas market without all these steel diversity barriers. I mean, as you know, I go to London from time to time Everywhere you have steel and concrete barriers in the name of diversity. You don't need that in Poland because they don't have those problems. I, I hope you'll do a few videos about that. Hey, let me ask you, did you bump into our friend Mark Morano? I, I, have you seen him or, or has he landed there yet? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. He's here on the ground. I followed his Twitter feed pretty closely and his, uh, and his friend Craig Rucker's Instagram. I know they're here. I'm trying to track them down, but they're busy guys, and they get up to a lot of no good. Yeah, those so guys... I'm going to do my best to track them down. Yeah, they, they got that rebel style. They're always in the shenanigans. Well, if you can hook up with them, that'd be, that'd be fun, because I bet they have yeah. a, a stunt planned like they, like they do every year. Yeah. Those guys are good guys, and it'll be nice for you to see an ally uh, there. Well, yeah. Kayla, it's great to see you, and best regards to our videographer and to all our friends there in Poland. And how many how many more days are you on the ground there? I know you have a very long journey back afterwards. Uh, how many more actual reporting days are you in Poland for? 
We're here till Friday. I leave very early Saturday morning and my videographer leaves Friday afternoon. So we are going to jam a lot of journalism into the remaining parts of the week. Great. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time. And I know it's nighttime over there. So thanks for joining us. A very pretty background of the Christmas bark. Yeah. Sheila, keep up the fight there. And I just want to let you know that you really are the only trustworthy window for us into the madness of this global warming conference. I have to tell you, I simply cannot trust a journalist that the UN trusts. And that's the choice here, because you were not yeah. accredited specifically because of your point of view. That means you are accredited in my books. The fact that the UN doesn't trust you is the reason I do trust you, and it's the, vice versa as well. If there's a journalist who manages to suck up to get into the UN, I know I can't <laughs> trust that, that journalist to tell me the straight goods. You know what, I didn't see, I've only seen one other journalist working outside of the United Nations facility this whole time. One. Huh. So that's, that, that means that everybody else is inside being, you know, professional repeaters instead of um, critical journalists. Yeah, that's a good point. They're repeaters. You're a reporter. We'll end it there, Sheila. Take care. Keep up the great work. And I'll invite our viewers to check out all your vids at rebelun.com. Take care, my friend. I will. Thank you, Ezra. All right. There you have it. Sheila Gunn-Reed, our Alberta Bureau Chief. This is her third United Nations Global Warming Conference. The first one, if you recall, in Marrakesh, they kept her out. We pressed them. They let her in. Then they kicked her out again because she was too independent, as the uh, Orwellian police would say. You've had too much to think. All right, folks, stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Well, that was our friend Sheila Gunn-Reed. Of course, she is in Katowice, Poland, which is eight hours ahead of Calgary, six hours ahead of Toronto, in the same time zone. But across the Mediterranean is our friend David Menzies, who comes to us now from Marrakesh, Morocco. How are you, my desert rose? <laughs> well, it's, it's more like guns and roses here, Ezra, with all the security, keeping all the UN muckety-mucks safe and sound, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, there's something ironic about a United Nations conference to erase our borders and remove our border security and remove applications and ID to come into our country. But boy, when it comes to the United Nations, they have high walls, big guns, and they demand all sorts of accreditation, don't they? Oh, Ezra, you nailed it. I mean, they're very anti-fence, anti-borders, anti-walls. But you go to the UK, UN uh, compound here in Marrakesh, and they suddenly love fences and walls and borders, and not to mention bomb-sniffing dogs and uh, security guards with uh, automatic weapons and airport-style security just to get into the place. So it's kind of like one rule for the deplorables, another rule for the elites telling the deplorables how to live their lives and how to manage migration. Quite, quite a, uh, a double standard, isn't it, my friend? Yeah, well, now, I, I got an email from you guys uh, <clears throat> earlier today that made me a little bit nervous because, of course, we applied for official UN accreditation, both for Sheila and for you. In both cases, it was denied because we were not politically supportive of the UN. That's outrageous to begin with, and it's frankly an embarrassment to Ahmed Hassan, uh, the uh, immigration minister, and Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, for not pushing back 
on behalf of Canadian values and Canadian journalists. Shame on them. But, you know, it's one thing for Sheila to be in Poland without official credentials, but you're in Morocco, which is a pretty liberal place as Arab countries go, but it's not yes. completely free. Tell me a little bit about what happened to you over the last 24 hours in regards to police and your journalism. Yeah, well, yesterday, Ezra, as you know, we went to the UN compound, didn't get in. The, the media registration people refused our credentials based on our behavior. I think they mean Sheila's behavior at previous UN conferences. And I don't know, maybe Sheila trashed the hotel room. Maybe she sniffed some people for bills. I know you're um, joking around. What she, all she did was ask some questions that uh, yes. that the Canadian delegation didn't like. Sheila, as you know, very well behaved. I know you're just joking, but for our viewers who don't know uh, the real truth, Sheila was kicked out because she asked, in a very polite tone, skeptical questions. So anyhow, back, I just wanted to let our people know you were you were joking there a bit. Oh, being complete facetious, uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed is a, is a complete lady, and she had the temerity to ask questions of some UN royalty uh, who didn't want to uh, have, give answers. So I guess we're banned in perpudity. Uh, but Ezra, so we actually were able to hang around the grounds of the UN compound. And we asked a couple of delegates questions. We met somebody from the alternative uh, for uh, Germany party. Uh, today we went down and uh, not only did we not get onto the grounds, we didn't even get past the front gates, which is a few football fields away from the grounds of the compound. Uh, the police there, um, we're wondering why we didn't have our proper credentials. And they looked into it saying, we're gonna find out if you're allowed just to be on the outside. But today, uh, even that was too much to ask. And um, the police were very polite. And, I, and this is not on the police here in Morocco. They were very polite. They were doing their job. I'm trying to do my job and Justin's trying to do his job. But And by uh, Justin, you're referring to our videographer. Correct, doing fantastic work. And um, by what this is on, uh, Ezra, is it's on the UN, and, and more specifically, it's on Canada, which gets to uh, vet and approve uh, the media from uh, from Canada. And obviously, we're on the uh, DTM dead to me list. As a matter of fact, just 10 minutes ago, I got off the line holding for one hour, Ezra, for a press conference uh, conducted by uh, Minister Hussein. And guess what? Uh, he didn't get a, he didn't get over to us for our one question. Somehow we got lost in the shuffle. So yeah. isn't that typical? They, he didn't even have the testicular fortitude to take one question uh, from us, even though we we're one of the few media that are from Canada that has flown thousands of miles uh, here uh, to take in the conference. Yeah, you know what? Um, I believe that people from anywhere in the world can become great Canadians, can embrace Canadian values. But one of Canada's values is a free press, an independent press, a press that can criticize the government, and a government that can take it. I believe that Ahmed Hassan is not reflecting Canadian values. In fact, I think he's too much in United Nations values, or even values of Somalia, where he grew up. To disparage and attack the rebel ideologically is one thing. To refuse to take questions from us is one thing. But to support passively or actively, I don't know which, our being banned from a UN conference is a disgrace. And I, I, think, he's, I think he's only too pleased 
to, to ban us. And I think that's a sign of a lot more to come, the kind of banning and marginalization as Canada becomes more like the UN instead of the UN becoming more like Canada. You know, and Ezra, this is not a partisan issue. If the Stephen Harper conservatives were still in power and they did this to a left-leaning Canadian media outlet, I would have the same condemnation. I mean, either you believe in a free press or you don't. And funny enough, one of the journalists on the conference call that asked him about, as you know, Ezra, there's some language in there about monitoring how the media uh, portray migrants and how... Uh, they should be corrected if necessary, or if government funded, have that funding removed. This is right in the UN compact. Yeah, paragraph for government C. I happen to know that. <laughs> yeah. I've read that so many times. I would encourage all our viewers, Google Global Compact for Migration. It comes up really quickly. Look at paragraph 33C. Anyhow, sorry, back to you, David. Someone asked about yeah. that on the conference call? And, and Minister Sen went uh, chapter and verse bragging about the kind of free press and press freedom that we have in Canada. Meanwhile, he's banned us, and he won't even, on this very same conference call, where he's taking questions from all kinds of journalists, won't even take one from rebel media. Well, he's a bit of a coward that way, and no surprise. Uh, the Trudeau uh, government only likes questions from, you know, the likes of Rosemary Barton of the state broadcaster. I don't know if you saw <laughs> her interview with Trudeau. It, it really felt like it was something out of The Bachelor or some reality dating show. Well, uh, David, we're, we're having a, a, a bit of a fun meta conversation about the conference, sort of like I had with Sheila a moment ago from Poland. But you have been doing some very substantive reports on this conference and they're going to be posted at rebelun.com. I know you've got some videos in the pipeline to us. <clears throat> Just tell our viewers some of the subjects that you've covered in your couple of days on the ground. Well, first of all, we, we went over the hypocrisy of how the UN is very much anti-fence, anti-wall, except when it comes to their own conferences. Secondly, uh, Ezra, I was struck by the perverse irony that, as you mentioned, Sheila's in Poland covering the uh, climate change uh, uh, conference there. And meanwhile, at this UN conference, if you looked at the parking lot, you would swear you were in a, in a Mercedes-Benz dealership. And we're not talking B-class, we're talking S-class, some of which are bulletproof. I mean, these are six-figure rides. These are V8 uh, spewing carbon monster machines. So no bicycles, no, no hybrids, nothing like that when it comes to uh, chauffeuring uh, their people around. And also, I, I think the hypocrisy in terms of the Canadian initiative here, um, we've talked about how they haven't gone to bat rebel. In fact, they've done everything they can to keep us out of uh, the, uh, the conference. But more importantly, why couldn't we at least have a debate yeah. in the, the, the House of Commons? I mean, Andrew Shear just before the conference started, um, resembling something that looked like a backbone, uh, condemned this. And, uh, of course, Gerald Butts, uh, Trudeau's puppet master, uh, played the whole alt-right, far-right yeah. card uh, against Andrew Scheer. And yet Little Latvia in Eastern Europe, in their parliament, they can have a debate about this. Because yeah. they know, remember, they, they have only been a free country for, you know, 20-odd years since the fall of the Soviet Union. So they, they still value democracy and freedom and sovereignty. You know, it's, it's insane and absurd to call anyone who doesn't want to be part of this open borders migration pact alt-right. Israel 
has said it doesn't want to be part of it. Chile, the South American country, doesn't want to be part of it. Poland, Austria, Czech Republic, Hungary, Latvia. I, I think there's a crisis in the Dutch parliament over this very thing. Um, the only countries in the world that love this migrant pact are the countries that no one ever wants to go to. No one is banging down the doors to get into Pakistan. No one says, I really want to go to Afghanistan and start a new life. No, so, you know, the fact that those countries sign on, Senegal, Gambia, whatever, no one cares that they sign it because people flee those countries. It's the wonderful West that has to have the walls. And country after country in Europe, at least, is saying no thanks. Last word to you, David. What do you hope to accomplish in the rest of your time there in Morocco? Well, you know, the conference has ended. It was only a short two-day conference. But again, it's to um, expose the hypocrisy. And, and again, Ezra, when you um, read the compact, the 30-odd pages, uh, one thing that stood out was that we're talking about that migration must be a human rights initiative and that it must be a gender initiative too. And yet, you look at the type of countries that make up the UN Human Rights Council. You know, we're talking Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, uh, 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 China, uh, I'm going off the top of my head here, but many others that have the most atrocious records when it comes to human rights and gender rights. And so, you know, the, and by the way, the, the Human Rights Council is obsessed with seemingly one thing, and that is resolution after resolution of condemning Israel, the one true democracy in the Middle East. So when it comes to gender rights, human rights, wow, the UN, they know how to talk the talk. Yeah. But when it comes to walking the walk, forget it. Yeah. All smoke, Ezra. All right, David. Well, thanks for going over there and reporting. And I look forward to seeing all your substantive videos on rebelun.com. And uh, when do you fly back to Canada? We are flying back tomorrow morning, um, and um, we will and we'll be back, I guess, uh, sometime in the wee hours of uh, Thursday to Canada. And uh, I have to say, Morocco is a very nice country, very, uh, I, I would say, amongst the Arab nations in the Middle East, very liberal. And just to go back, one other point about all this uber security you saw at the UN building to tie it into something you said, Ezra. Um, I think it's real. They're really overplaying their hand there because the countries that support this kind of open migration, um, they wouldn't come and attack this. And this is what they want. They, they don't want borders. They want um, no one is illegal. They want migration to be a, an, an enshrined human right. So I think they spent a ton of money for nothing on the security, given that um, the bad guys, so to speak, want this to go through. Right. Well, I mean, I think the bad guys would want to sow fear, terror and chaos, even if they were killing some allies. But uh, I Maybe. take your point on that, that, uh, <laughs> that these mass migrations have been a wonderful way for ISIS and other terrorist groups to embed themselves in with these teeming hordes of humanity. Um, yes. Terrorists in uh, Europe have absolutely uh, a number of terrorists have absolutely come in the name of being refugees. That's been going on. For several years now. David, great to catch up with you. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Ezra. Thank you so much. All right, there you have it. Our friend David Menzies coming to us uh, from the middle of the night from Marrakesh, Morocco. Again, uh, uh, an entertaining conversation about the trip itself, but I recommend that you go to rebelun.com to see his actual reports from the conference. Stay with us. More ahead on the Rebel.
Hey, welcome back on my show yesterday on the UN Global Warming Conference in Poland and the UN Conference on the Global Compact for Migration, Liza writes, all you have to do is check out the actual agreement to know that they are lying. Yeah, it's so easy to find, and I can't believe all these pundits are re repeating the same talking point. It's non-binding, it's non-binding. It absolutely is an agreement for implementation that they are already applying. I'm not worried that, I don't know, Czechoslovakia, well, they're actually not even signing. I'm not worried that um, Yemen is going to press us to follow the Global Compact for Migration. I don't care about Yemen or about Turkey. It's individual migrants who now have this document in their hands as they go to our Immigration and Refugee Board. I'm not worried about being bound by some UN debate. I'm talking about someone who walks across the border, lands at an airport, arrives on a boat even, and says, oh yeah, I've got this global compact for migration. Uh, my rights are listed here 112 times. I want them. And by the way, our, as I showed you, our Immigration and Refugee Protection Act specifically says, section 33F, if I'm going from memory, that when we sign an international document like that, it uh, is how we interpret our Canadian law. So that's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about like, some foreign country sparring with us over it. I'm worried about what it really does is create a human right for migration. Betty writes, famous last words on the compact, it's non-binding. It is not non-binding. And if it was non-binding, then it wouldn't matter if we signed it or not, would it? Uh, but, it's, but they're obsessed by it. They're adamant that we sign it. They're outraged that anyone would not. Bruce writes, good answer regarding climate change. It always changes, let's all remember. And when some naive fool or smart pants person asks that dumb question. Yeah, look, I mean, of course climate changes. Um, you know, when I was at Lanso Meadows in Newfoundland, if you ever go to Newfoundland, may I recommend going to Lanso Meadows? It is where the Vikings set foot in Newfoundland. And the temperature was so much warmer then. It was called the medieval optimal. That's what climatologists call that beautiful period about a thousand years ago. They called it optimal. It was so warm, Greenland was green. They had vineyards in the United Kingdom. And I think they planted vineyards in Newfoundland. Could you imagine that? That's what two degrees warmer means. It means an extra month of growing. It means really warm and moist summers. That's how nice it was when the Vikings came. And I was actually shocked that anything like a museum that's under the oversight of the federal government would still mention that the earth was two degrees warmer then, because that shows that we're cooler now and the earth oscillates in temperature naturally. And those Viking ships weren't burning fossil fuels. Folks, that's our show for today. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night and keep fighting for freedom.